Welcome to The Vampire Squid, a podcast about increasing transparency and education in finance. This is your host, Alan Lee, and welcome to episode 30 of The Vampire Squid. I can't believe we've already made it to 30 episodes, and I want to do a special episode this week. Um, and we have on Karen Ho, who is a professor at the University of Minnesota who studies Wall Street anthropology. She got her PhD at Princeton, and she got a master's in undergrad at Stanford, all in anthropology. And this episode is one of the most jam-packed, informative episodes that I think I've done to date. Um, we talk about things from the Wall Street culture cocktail of smartness, short-termism, and bonus structure. We talk about making the familiar strange and making the strange familiar. We also talk about why saying that Wall Street culture is greedy is is too surface level. Um, there's a ton of information in this episode, and uh, one of the one of the most fun that I've done to date as well. So I hope that you all enjoy and. I had to break this episode up into two episodes since it was over an hour long. But as always, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, please feel free to email me at alan, A-L-A-N, at thevampiresquid.com. And I hope that you guys enjoy the episode. So welcome to The Vampire Squid. I have on a very special guest today, Karen Ho. And uh, Karen, thanks so much for coming on to the show. Thank you, Alan, for inviting me. Of course. And uh, Karen is a professor, and she studies, she has studied Wall Street anthropology. So I thought it'd be a great idea to bring her onto the show since we're all about increasing transparency and education and finance and uh, really wanted to hear what Karen had to offer in terms of what she found through her research, um, her experience and learnings uh, over the past few years. But um Karen, if you wouldn't mind just uh, giving a quick background on, you know, who you are so our listeners uh, understand who they're listening to. Sure. Um, my name is Karen Ho, and I'm a social cultural anthropologist. And what that means um, is that we study really all the things that human beings um, construct, participate in, think about, um, struggle with. Um, and as a cultural anthropologist, one of our key methodologies um, is the notion that if you actually want to understand a particular community, set of ideas, um, cultural practices, social change, you actually have to be with and amongst um, the folks or the set of ideas or the communities that you hope to understand and analyze. And so that actually means conducting ethnographic field research. Um, what some anthropologists like call, uh, call deep hanging out. <laughs> um, and so actually my a key site of um, ethnographic study um, was Wall Street investment banks and bankers. And I conducted three years of field research um, with and amongst uh, Wall Street uh, financial uh, institutions and in particular uh, investment bankers really sort of in the late 1990s and into the millennium before the sort of major uh, financial crisis of 2008. Um, I received my training um, at Princeton. Um, I got my PhD in social anthropology. Um, and for my dissertation, I actually wrote um, a manuscript on Wall Street culture. Got it. And how, how did you initially even get interested in studying Wall Street culture? 
So uh, that's a really good question. And, you know, as a graduate student at Princeton, um, one of the sort of key socioeconomic events, um, I should say, that happened was that uh, AT&T in the mid-1990s announced uh, what was then one of the largest corporate restructurings and downsizings um, in business history. And what I had noticed is that it's on, whereas on the front page of the New York Times, it talked about major worker and uh, employee dislocation and change and um, uh, really sort of, you know, a, um, a sea change. The, uh, the financial section, the business section, its stock price, the AT&T stock price actually went up to a 52 week high. And the sort of copy around that, right, the sort of uh, uh, the financial journalists wrote about how for Wall Street, this was actually they they viewed this as a very positive deal. Right. They viewed this as something that um, really indexed and showcased a a um, shift in how large corporations would operate um, and that if AT&T, a bellwether of the telecommunications industry, was going to do this kind of restructuring, then Wall Street investment banks would have a lot more deals in their pipeline because uh, other companies would want to emulate Wall Street and follow that sort of uh, socioeconomic fashion, so to speak, and conduct these similar kinds of um, deals and restructurings, et cetera. And so the stock prices of Wall Street investment banks also shot up. And the way as an outsider to this world that I initially viewed it was how weird, right? You have this stark juxtaposition on the one hand of most of mainstream society being sort of surprised and critical of this, uh, of this, of this massive downsizing. And yet the, the financial sort of uh, section seemed to think that this was actually good news. And so as an outsider to this, I thought, gosh, you know, it's not that folks on Wall Street are masochists, right? They're not <laughs> super happy, right, that 100,000 workers and employees, managers, um, but also higher up folks um, lost their positions. Um, and yet that seemed to sort of imbue the mood of um, of the business section. And so I thought, you know, Something deeper is going on, right? And so what I wanted to understand as a cultural uh, anthropologist was how did this sort of make sense for folks who worked in that world, right? Because they, they really thought of this in the, you know, this one of the key tenets of anthropology is to really understand the native's point of view, not to judge it from the outside, right? Not to substitute my assumptions for the assumptions of folks in finance, but to really understand why for them this was a good move, why for them this was socially and economically legitimate, how they justified it from their point of view. And so the only way to do that was um, for me to actually, uh, I took a leave of absence from graduate school and worked um, on Wall Street for a year. I was actually um, an analyst at Bankers Trust. Um, Bankers Trust is now merged into or was sort of uh, uh, is now Deutsche Bank. Um, and so after that year of being employee and sort of learning the language of finance, et cetera, I then um, got sort of permission, et cetera, to actually go back and conduct interviews all confidentially. Um, 
with uh, folks who work there, et cetera, et cetera. And so, but the, the sort of different um, understandings of corporate restructuring and the role of corporations and the role, the, the sort of growing importance of stock prices, of shareholder value, and different interpretations around that was what galvanized my initial study. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And, uh, you know, I know that we chatted briefly, um, you know, a few days ago, but, uh, you had a really good quote that I remember and it was that your job was to make the strange familiar and make the familiar strange. Uh, would you mind elaborating a little bit more on that and, uh, how it ties into your study on Wall Street culture? Absolutely. So again, one of the sort of key conceptual tenets of anthropology is to do two things in tandem. And one is to make the strange familiar. And the other is to make the familiar strange. Now, regarding the former, making the strange familiar, sort of historically, anthropology has uh, studied the relatively marginalized, right? Communities, um, the so-called third world, um, that have really sort of undergone and navigated and resisted, for example, colonialism and imperialism. And so it was really to sort of to understand and try to make sense of, but also try to explain, right, that, that folks, um, in the sort of global north in the first world oftentimes had wrongheaded Eurocentric oftentimes imperialist, um, and as well as racist understandings of the so-called sort of third world peoples. And so part of making the strange familiar was to say, you know, you actually um, pigeonhole, exoticize, stereotype, you know, certain others. And so part of the anthropological enterprise was to um, denaturalize, right, and to show the sort of human similarities, but also to explain the context of differences, as opposed to just simply hierarchizing and saying, X people are weird, right? So that's the sort of part of making the strange familiar. Since anthropology also now studies the relatively powerful, right? Historically, we didn't. In the past 30 years or so, we've really moved to studying, to using the sort of fine-grained ethnographic field research tools of anthropology to also try to make sense of the powerful, the corridors of power, the institutions, the sort of the folks who get to be framed as normal, uh, the fish who swim in the water that are oftentimes the last to see the water, right? And so in that project of... Um, Understanding the norm or understanding the powerful, making the familiar strange is a crucial methodology, right? Because part of making the familiar strange is that you see its constructedness, you see its interests, you see the relations of power and hierarchy that imbue what you actually take for granted as normal. And so when you no longer take it for granted, when you no longer see it necessarily as the norm, it becomes less invisible, right? You want to make it visible. You want to show how it's made so that you one can actually hope to um, shift or change or um, critique many of these kinds of um, powerful practices. Interesting. And applying that... Uh, sort of framework to Wall Street culture. Um, you know, what, what were your, what were your findings in terms of how people behaved or how people thought? And, you know, I know we, we touched, um, upon this in our, in our earlier conversation about how 
<clears throat> maybe greed was too surface level. Um, what what were uh, maybe a surface or two deeper into what you found in your studies? No, that's a great question. Um, the reason why I resist the sort of use or the naming of greed is that um, it's 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 too easy. Right. Um, uh, critiquing or naming or calling out Wall Street greediness really doesn't get at the ways in which these are socially um, uh, that they're intense socialization processes that actually help to produce the practices and identities and experiences and ideologies of folks who work in this industry. And so um by saying greed, it naturalizes that, right, as opposed to showing how folks actually get inculcated, that they get trained, that um, they get incentivized to do certain things. And many folks who um, um, leave the industry or many folks who might not have worked in Wall Street but then go on to work in Wall Street, they too, right, get trained in these ideas. And so I really want to um, question this idea of, greed, right? Because one could say everyone is greedy. And I want to question the notion of, of a few bad apples, right? Because few bad apples really sort of individualizes the problem when I would argue that these are deeply cultural, institutional, and larger problem, larger issues um, that uh, necessitate sort of broader solutions that aren't just placed on individual shoulders or individual odd proclivities and eccentricities. Mm-hmm. So, what did you what did you find in um some of the people under under the greed were there uh other cultural factors that contribute to this sort of negative perception of wall street um you know what what are some of the drivers that that you see yes so i it's okay so i'll, I'll there's a long answer to your question and so feel free to interrupt me cuz uh, you know i'll kind of go on this sort of tripartite uh, uh explanation here um so, you know, what I really noticed on Wall Street is that one of the key um, makers, right, of Wall Street identities is what I call the culture of smartness. And this really comes out very sort of early on in the pipeline. I think what most people um, who are not uh, in the industry, um, I think what most people don't realize is that sort of bulge bracket Wall Street investment banks you know, over the course of the 1980s and, you know, up until 2008, and it's certainly continuing, um, really only recruited from a handful of elite, mainly private universities. And uh, the sort of two universities that Wall Street uh, recruited sort of uh, the heaviest from um, were Harvard and Princeton. And so, what I sort of try to argue is that there was this um, what I call the sort of elite kinship bridge, the sort of halo effect that Wall Street investment banks really wanted to recruit from institutions already branded by the larger society as, quote, the best and the brightest. And and it's not so much necessarily that these these students now, yes, these students are very smart. Students from a lot of other uh, schools are very smart as well. Um, but it was sort of the active naming and cultivation um of smartness, right? And the active claiming of smartness that was sort of key to Wall Street identity. So this is sort of on the one hand. And part of claiming smartness also meant that folks began to justify 
um, their legitimacy as global advisors, right? Justify their legitimacy as global advisors to corporations, even when many Wall Street investment bankers actually didn't have that much experience, right? So part of what we need to understand here is that many investment bankers actually don't work that long, right? Um, in terms of years in mm-hmm. the, in, in finance, right? At the time that I was doing my research, there was a sort of a very active revolving door, um, employment. So, you know, folks really thought of their stints on Wall Street as very temporary, right? You're only in an analyst position for two years. Um, folks were constantly sort of job hopping. So many of the bankers, at least from the mid to late 1990s and into the millennium, really thought of their jobs as having an expiration date. And so they really didn't think of themselves as really being there for the long term. So so I've sort of given you two sort of key um, sort of cultural um, structures. On the one hand, we have the culture of smartness simply by recruiting from an elite university, not necessarily based on what they studied, their experience, et cetera, et cetera, nor, you know, their sort of provenness for sort of doing uh, finance well. Right. But just that elite cachet, um, what I call sort of a sort of privileged status was was key in terms of their framing of what constitutes smartness. Um, second, there was an expiration date to their jobs. People really thought of themselves and experienced their jobs as fundamentally insecure. Um, and the sort of third sort of part is, um, you know, that folks at this time and, you know, I would say continuing on, um, were very bonus driven, right? And part of, and, you know, this was very much the sort of critique of 2008 uh, or in the wake of 2008 was that investment bankers are paid not necessarily or actually not by necessarily the quality of their advice, right? But ma- but in many cases, the quantity of deals and transactions that they can execute. So given, right, so you're sort of, you know, so I'm trying to bring it together here to the third point. So given that many folks thought of themselves as the smartest in the world, and that's what many, um, you know, of their sort of, um, you know, uh, higher ups actually conveyed to them as well, mm-hmm. um, that they also really thought of their jobs as, as relatively temporary. They're really and that they're incentivized to really push as many transactions through as possible. Right. Because they weren't going to be at their jobs for very long. And if you're smart, you really don't need to think about it. You just know that you're smart. Right. So (laughs) this really sort of created a complex cocktail where folks, even when they knew um, and I'll give you an example in just a bit, um, that a particular deal or transaction was not necessarily the best advice. They legitimated it by saying, well, I'm a smart person. I deserve to kind of give, give, uh, you know, um, my clients this advice. And by the way, I'm not going to be here a year from now to actually see the deal fall apart. And in a few months, I'm going to get compensated based on the fact that this deal went through. And so I sort of call these sort of this tripartite mix, this melange, what I call sort of it created a culture of expediency, a culture of liquidity that actually um, helped to engender, that helped to actually structure the ingredients for short-termism and structure the ingredients for crisis-making. 
And I'd love to hear from you in terms of, you know, much of this research, again, was from the late 1990s, you know, into dot com and 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 the few years afterwards. It wasn't about necessarily folks who um, and the sort of shifts after 2008. And so I'd love to hear also maybe a ensuing conversation about what, if any, if of these sort of findings still stand. Yeah. And I, I think the the first point makes a lot of sense. You know, people think they're smart. Um, they go into the industry. It carries this sort of attitude. I wanted to touch briefly on, on the second point, too. Yeah. Um, the revolving door, because, uh, you know, even today, uh, as you mentioned, uh, or, as you thought that a lot of analysts that go into investment banking see it as a two year uh you know, career path before it's a stepping stone before they join maybe a buy side job or they go to a startup or do, you know, some type of development work at a fortune 500 company, um, right. which contributes to that short termism that, that you mentioned. Uh, I'm curious though, is if there were short termism on the more senior level, um, the people that were executing these deals, because at the junior level, I, I completely agree. It's, it's very short term. Um, and plus nowadays, I think almost every, <laughs> almost every type of job is a little bit short termism, right. especially with millennials. But did you right. see the that? The gig at, economy, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and did you see that at the senior level? Because, um, those were the ones executing the deals or providing the advice. Did you see that they were also on this type, type of mentality that it was, um, you know, very short term and they, they did other jobs afterwards? Um, I did not as short term, right. As the analyst and the, um, and the associates, but still relatively short term. And in fact, they would actually often move, uh, on the one hand within their bank, right. So you would actually see folks who were in fixed income, fixed income, uh, the next year they were in structured finance. They're in structured finance for two years. The next year they were mm-hmm. in, um, you know, a, a different group. So there was a lot of jockeying for position and a lot of moving around at the senior level. There was also on the, on the other hand, and I actually don't mean these necessarily as opposing, but, uh, twin parts of the same issue. Um, uh, many senior levels were, or senior bankers were constantly moving to other banks. Right. So sometimes they were pushed out. Uh, sometimes they got a bonus that they didn't really quite like. Sometimes they were heavily recruited and got a new signing bonus at a different institution. Um, and would every three or four years would get a new signing bonus at a different institution. And so keep in mind that before 2008, one could argue that there are more investment banks. Right. So, um, so during the time that I was doing research, there was still Solomon Smith Barney, right? Solomon had recently merged with Smith Barney. There were either, they were sort of getting into sort of Citigroup. Um, uh, uh, Merrill Lynch still existed. Obviously Lehman Brothers still existed. DLJ still existed. They, um, were just, it was just before they fully merged with Credit Suisse. Um, and so you, what you saw was, and, you know, certainly there was Goldman Sachs and also Morgan Scandale, et cetera, et cetera. But what you saw was folks would say, oh, they used to be um, telecom at Morgan Stanley. They just got recruited to Goldman Sachs. Oh, the folks who were actually doing um, the Asia desk at J.P. Morgan. Oh, they're all now at Citigroup. Right. So you really saw this quite a bit at the senior level where. Just they they weren't necessarily thinking about and sometimes they would take their clients with them and sometimes they wouldn't. But the overall, even though there was a little bit more stewardship, one could argue, um, or long termness, it wasn't a huge order of magnitude higher 
than uh, the folks who were um, lower down on the hierarchy, right? The general affect was also one of constant job shifting. Um, but, you know, you do actually make an important point that there were a few people um, managing directors in particular that I interviewed who had been there for, for, um, for quite a while. And those folks actually had a critique of short termism that they saw many of their younger colleagues who were, um, in positions of power, but keep in mind, uh, they were only in their mid to late thirties, right? So these older folks were only in their forties. <laughs> <laughs> and they had, right, they were only in their 40s, uh, maybe um, sort of mid to late 40s, but they had seen 87, right, the sort of, um, the sort of, you know, stock market crash of 87. They had seen the peso crisis of 93. They had seen the sort of Russian and Asian financial crises of 97. They had seen long-term capital management of 2000. They'd seen dot-com of 2001. So, so you don't need to be there for that long <laughs> to actually see lots of, many and not so many crises. And so many of these sort of, you know, a bit more sort of senior managing directors who had, who had been through this decade articulated something that I didn't hear from those who were VPs or um, associates or analysts. And they said, you know, Wall Street is going to be in trouble if they keep doing the short term thing. Right. And, um, to quote one of my informants, he said, you know, I were ringing the cash register too many times, right? We're ringing the cash register too many times. And that really stuck out to me because what he was saying to me is, you know, what we're doing is we're sort of mortgaging the future by trying to get too many transactions out of something when in fact we should actually be doing, right, um, sort of more longer term advice that might be actually, um, uh, sort of promote more stable productivity and not simply going for the easy short-term transaction that will in the end maybe actually shoot the client in the foot. So we're not talking about, um, you know, the measure that we use, which is every quarter or every year or every deal or every bonus season. Um, that kind of measure might actually undermine long-term productivity in the future, right? Ring the cash register too many times, in the present actually prevents sort of long-term productive growth in the medium and long-term. And so what I saw him as sort of um, what I understood him as telling me was Wall Street's model of short-term shareholder value didn't necessarily actually produce long-term shareholder value or stability um, if you actually take a longer view. And then certainly in 2008, um, we certainly saw that uh, ring true. Yeah, and I think that really hits home on on a couple points. Um, I, I think the first one is that investment banks are paid on transactions, and that really contributes to making a transaction happen uh, with not not no regard, but little regard to uh, how the actual transaction will perform in the future, because um, the business model uh, itself is being paid on just the transaction happening. Right. Um, and I guess the second one is the quarterly earnings, which, um, the, all the public companies subscribe to, where they have to present to investors every quarter and see if they miss or beat, you know, EPS guidance. Uh, 
which which I also I think contributes to that short termism. Do, do you see? Um, is, is there a solution for this, or is it just so ingrained in our society and finance that this will be the way it is? Or <laughs> are there are yeah. there any um, antidotes to yeah. uh, this short termism? So that's a great question. I actually do think it is uh, quite ingrained, um, but you know, like all things, it was sort of made into the existence, and we can actually unmake it, right? It'd be some sort of, you know, uh, claw our way out of it as well, right? So it's not like these practices are inevitable. Um, Drain the swamp. Exactly. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stay out of politics for this episode, but... <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Well, you know, uh, sometimes, um, given that I would actually question if we're actually in a in a truth-based world, <laughs> what happened to the social fact that uh, we'll have to qualify that statement as uh, maybe being... being uh, claimed by somebody who doesn't always participate in a truth-based world. (laughs) (laughs) Completely agree. Um, But no, the sort of ingrainedness is, you know, I want to go back a little bit to the culture of smartness. Part of what Wall Street has done so well is to say, you know, when we're paying the the way in which bonuses are structured, um, they justify their structuring of bonuses by saying that's how we attract talent. That's how we attract the smartness, uh, the smartest in the world. And so those two kinds of things need to be disentangled a little bit, right? That the, 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 rec- the retraining and the recruitment of talent doesn't necessarily mean that bonuses need to be paid on such a short term, um, manner. So, so that's one thing. But the second thing is, I think there are, and you know, I'd be curious to hear if, if you hear any rumblings of this. I know a little bit after 2008. And that's to slightly sh- shift the compensation structure at some of these financial institutions. So for example, tying, at least at the managing director level, their, the quality of their advice right, in a longer term time frame. So just because the deal is executed. So for example, let's take um, the AOL Time Warner deal, which at the time I was doing research was one of the biggest deals in sort of financial history. And uh, a few years after the deal was sort of widely panned as one of the worst deals <laughs> in financial history. Uh, this is similar to uh, Daimler Chrysler, right? And I actually had a chance to interview uh, some folks who were involved in these deals, and they both said, you know, similar things. And that is, we actually sort of know that this deal is sort of lame, right? That these deals are actually not the best advice that we could give. And yet the fees, right, are on the order of 40 to $50 million. They're astronomical. And they directly went to uh, certainly the senior bankers' uh, bottom line. So... This is certainly something to say, is there a way to actually tie bonuses to the quality of the advice? That doesn't seem to be too radical, right? So that's one. And two, um, should can bonuses also be tied to a two to five year um, time frame in addition, right? So maybe some of it can be paid out when it's executed, but maybe if it's executed and then falls apart the day after, <laughs> shouldn't there be some kind of sanction against that, right? And so, you know, one could actually 
invent the time frame. Maybe just just one year. Maybe it's just two years. But the idea that sort of one uh, plants a financial bomb and then runs away just seems to be a little bit too reckless. <laughs> yeah, and I think that makes sense too. It can maybe be you know you get X percent of the transaction fee upfront, and then maybe a year later you could get the remainder. Plus, if the company does well or does even better than expected, you could potentially get even a bigger bonus on that. Maybe something like that, but definitely something to to discuss and debate about, I think. Absolutely. 